Well, good morning. My name is Aubrey, and I'm one of the pastors here. And with Sam, I too am really glad to be with you this morning. If you brought a copy of the Bible, uh, find our Old Testament reading, Genesis chapter 37. It's uh, from the first book of the Bible, so it's pretty easy to find, even if you're not deeply familiar with Scripture. And if you're not familiar with Scripture, uh, a great way to grow to understand it is to find a copy of the Bible and bring it to church with you, and you can kind of get used to it by following along. So this morning, we're starting a series of sermons on the life of Joseph. It's the last big chunk of Scripture In the book of Genesis. It goes from Genesis chapter 37 all the way to Genesis chapter 50. And it's a new series, but actually it's um, not totally new. Back in the summer of 2013, we started the book of Genesis. And uh, we went through the first few chapters, and then a year, and we took a break, and a year later, we covered the life of Abraham in 2014. And then a year after that, in 2015, We covered the life of Jacob, and now after a four-year hiatus, we've come back and we're going to try to finish the book. If you've been with us since January, you know that we're almost finished with Revelation. But I didn't think we were ready to finish it, and I knew that we could sustain at least a four-year break, and so we'll see. No, the plan is I'm going to finish Revelation in uh, November, the Lord willing, but for the for the this fall, for the bulk of it, up until November, we're going to look at the life of Joseph. All right, let's start in verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph was 17 years old, and he tended the sheep as a helper to his brothers, the sons of Billa and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought bad reports about them to their father. This is the path to brotherly love, right? And here's another help to brotherly love. The father, Israel, loved the tattletale more than all his other sons. For he was a child of his old age, and he had made for him a special tunic, a, a special coat. And when his brothers saw that their father loved their littlest brother more than any of them, it made them love him. And they could only speak goodness to him. That Well, no, the Bible says they hated him. And they could not speak peacefully to him. Now, many Bible scholars agree that this part of Genesis, the end, chapters 37 to 50, it's, it's the most complex story in the entire Bible. More than any other story in the Bible, it is crafted in, in literary ways to a very high degree. And there's a lot of nuance in it. So we do need to be careful with this. We read this and we're like, oh yeah, what a dumb dad playing favoritism. And uh, no no wonder the brothers are so mad at him. That's only on the surface. This is far more complex and nuanced than that. You see, here we are at the beginning of of the whole opening of Scripture. And it's this long story of Joseph's life. And it gathers up all the themes from earlier in Genesis, and it particularly pays attention to a little bitty theme that's been growing. And it's been growing and growing and growing 
And here suddenly this theme comes into full flower. And this theme is not only something that's been going on in Genesis and it's important to Genesis, but as you keep reading the Bible the way it's meant to be read, which is as this one huge, sprawling, capacious narrative, this theme that Joseph focuses on becomes the theme of the entire Bible. It's the theme of the beloved son. It's been playing out in little bitty kind of glimpses up until now in Genesis, but all of a sudden here with Joseph, it comes all the way front and center. So what's going on here is that the Bible, Genesis, has been preparing us to read the life of Joseph as more than just a morality play about don't show favoritism to children and envy can lead to murder. Now, all of that can be true, but something else is going on. And what, what's going on that makes this different than just a morality play about don't have envy and don't show favoritism is that Joseph actually is different than his brothers. That's what makes the difference. Joseph is unique. Now, I know that your children are unique. I know that some of you in this room have the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth cutest kids in the world. Or, I'm sorry, the sixth, seventh, and eighth. I have five children, so it was a very bad joke that just suddenly created the dynamic of... Anyway. Joseph wasn't just unique in the way Americans all think their kids are unique. God really is with Joseph in a special way. God has uniquely set his heart on Joseph. He's uniquely loved Joseph. He's uniquely blessed Joseph. He's uniquely gift, gifted by God. And God has a really important role for Joseph to play. He has a unique role for Joseph to play. Not just in his family's life, but in the life of all of Israel and the whole world. And so God, because of this, has actually given Joseph more than he's given other people. He's filled him with grace and goodness and virtue. And he's chosen Joseph to save his family, to save their lives and the lives of many others. And how would you respond if that was your son? Right, so as we read Jacob's deep love for Joseph, we've got to remember this is complicated because on the one hand, Jacob is responding in an immature and foolish way and a devastating way to something that's really there. Joseph has been chosen by God and sent by God. And so Jacob's preference of him is an immature, sinful manifestation of Jacob's recognition, this kid is different. There is God's supernatural, extraordinary grace in this kid's life. And as we read through Joseph's life, other than his dad and brothers, people are drawn to him. They too give him favor. They too respond to God's grace in his life by saying, oh, Here's a reward. Here's a gift. And then there's Joseph. How is he responding to the grace of God in his life? Well, not in a very wise way, right? I mean, when you are the smartest and you're the youngest, I mean, I can understand some of this. No, <laughs> I'm joking. Sorry, D, if Casey listens to my sermon. This business about telling on his brothers to his father who favors him, 
when he is the most gifted and successful and intelligent, this is not a very wise thing to do. It's foolish for the fair-haired child of the company to tattle on the people who just aren't as good as you. And then how are the brothers responding to God's choosing of Joseph? Well, they respond the way a lot of you would if you had this brother. They're jealous. They're envious. So we've got Jacob the father responding to God's supernatural blessing on Joseph's life by a nearly lethal favoritism. And then we've got Joseph's Joseph's own lack of wisdom, his brashness, his immaturity. And then there are the brothers who respond with envy And we can get it, right? You can see how being like LeBron James's brother or Mother Teresa's sister, or depending on your politics, I don't know, pick somebody else who maybe you like. I mean, can you imagine if one of your sons is Plato and another is Hitler? How would you as a family respond to this? I know I mixed up centuries, but try to get the point. What do you do when you have a bunch of children, all are special, And one, obviously, is going to shape the destiny of millions. And everybody sees it. Can you imagine being Jesus' brother? Can you imagine adolescence with Jesus for an adolescent brother? Can you imagine being a child and told to clean your room? And Jesus cleans his room. And then you look at your room. (laughs) Do any of you have a sibling that is more talented more beautiful, more kind, more successful, more virtuous than you are. That's what's going on in this family. And then it gets worse. Joseph has a dream. And in the Bible, God gives dreams to kings. In the Bible, dreams are a mark of royalty. Priests consult oracles. Prophets see visions, and kings dream dreams. Notice verse 5. Joseph dreamed a dream in time gone by. Joseph told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. He said to them, please listen to this dream. Imagine we were binding sheaves in the countryside, and there my sheaf rose up, yes, and it stood up, and your sheaf surrounded my sheaf and bowed down to it. And his brothers said to him, do you really intend to be our king? To reign over us? Do you really intend to rule over us? So at 17 years old, God gives Joseph a dream that clearly indicates to Joseph he's going to rule over his family. And not just his family, but over many nations. And if you've read the rest of the story, it's true. This really does play out. His family really does end up showing up and bowing down before him. And so do other kings and queens, moons and stars and suns. This really does play out. So we know from the rest of the story that this is true. Jacob's infuriating preference for Joseph is the wrong response to a real thing. God has given Joseph a mysterious grace. Now this doesn't excuse Joseph for his immature, foolishly telling his brothers, hey guys, you're going to all bow down to me. And they get mad at him. So he says, oh, that's not all. So are mom and dad. (laughs) So the brothers are having none of it. Notice verse 11. 
His father, the end of it, his father kept the saying in mind. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, that's an echo of another very famous parent treasuring something up. Who? Mary. Who also had a unique son. Who people also responded to in immature and crazy and mysterious ways. The reason you should recognize that is because when you're reading the Old Testament, always remember this. The Old Testament is a biography. The Old Testament is the biography of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what we heard in our gospel reading. Jesus said, everything written about me in in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be filled. The whole Old Testament's about me. It's got to be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written, after he showed them the Old Testament, he said, look, the Old Testament, it shows that I will suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name and all the earth. Now, if you read the Old Testament scouring for where it says God was going to become a human and he was going to suffer and he was going to die, you can't find a verse saying that. Because you see, the Old Testament outlines the life of Jesus in shadow ahead of time. Like any great writer, God writes a story with foreshadowing. And God writes history the way Barbara Finnegan writes her novels. Barbara Finnegan is lured over the creation in her novels. She controls the destiny of the characters. She engineers the history so that when you're reading at the beginning, you get a glimpse, a whiff, a foretaste, a foreshadow of what is to come. God has the power over history that any great author has over their novel. And so, like any great author, God, who is the author of Scripture, he foreshadows later happenings in the Bible with earlier happenings. The Lord writes history, not merely with words. He writes with events, real events, that are meant to teach us when we look at them. They're meant to be signs of things that come later. God is the author of history. He orchestrates history so that it will point us to Jesus. Joseph shows us Jesus in outline. I mean, look at what happens after Mary treasures up these. I mean, Jacob ponders these things and holds them in his mind. Look what happens next. His brothers went to shepherd their father's flocks in Shechem. The Lord said to Joseph, aren't your brothers looking after the flocks in Shechem? Come, let me send you to them. And Joseph said to his father, here I am. When was the last time in Genesis we heard the words, here I am? It was another beloved son. It was Abraham and Isaac. And it also involved blood and a sacrifice and a favored son. All of the Bible is a tissue and you have to read it so much that you hold it in your mind and you can hear these faint whispers and echoes because that's how you understand what's going on in all of these places. And here with Joseph, we have a father sending his beloved son to his death. And we should remember 
at this moment the most famous verse in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. I'm not saying that Jacob or Joseph knew any of this. But God, the author of history, did. And he gives us Joseph so that we can see Jesus more clearly. So look at Joseph in this chapter, leaving his home, dispatched by his father to find his brothers who are plotting to kill him and see our beloved Lord Jesus Christ, sent by the father, taking on flesh, coming to look for us, to seek you. And to seek me. So if Jacob is imaging for us the Father. In outline form. Not perfect form. But it's there. It's a whisper. It's an echo. It's a shadow. And if Joseph is echoing and shadowing and pointing us to Jesus. Who are the brothers pointing us to? Verse 15. Here's Joseph wandering around the fields. Why is he wandering around? Because they're not where they're supposed to be. Because they've gone astray. Here is Jesus seeking you. By this point in the story, you should have gotten it. You should have said, I'm the brothers. Here is Jesus coming for me. And where does he find you? Where you're supposed to be? Can you see yourself in the brothers, resentful of Jesus claiming the right to rule over your life? Have you ever read a passage in the Bible that clearly says for you to do something that you do not want to do? Have you ever resented God's total, absolute claim on your life, your body, your time, your money, your finances? Have you ever found yourself wanting something that clearly Put you at odds with the one who created you and longs to save you. Don't sit in judgment on the brothers. Can't you relate? Can't you, haven't you ever found yourself, I cannot, will not forgive that person. I cannot, will not give my money sacrificially, lower my lifestyle to do that. I cannot, will not surrender my sexuality to you. I cannot, will not stop envying, stop being jealous, stop lusting. I mean, just go through the list. And in those moments, when you feel in you a resistance to King Jesus, you see this in the brothers. When we think that our desires are better, smarter, more fair, more true. More, uh, it's, it's, it's the way that will help us live the life that will bring us the best life. In those moments, we're saying, do you really intend to be king over me? To reign over me? Do you really intend to rule over me? So here are the brothers, bristling with resentment. And we should all recognize the places in our lives where that is so easy to do. Remember, their resentment, we can all get it, right? Tattletale, smarter than us, immaturely reminding us of that. Can't, can't you see how reasonable it is for them to feel this way about him? But notice... Notice how God is writing with a shadow of things to come. Over the weeks ahead, as we continue to read through the story of Joseph's life, we'll see, like the brothers will eventually come to see, 
we will see that Joseph, to everyone's astonishment, that Joseph's favor by God, the favor that the brothers have set themselves against, it will absorb their envy and their conspiracy and their murderous rage and employ it in their redemption. This harmful thing, this terrible thing that the brothers do to Joseph, God will make good use of it. Their act of sacrificing their brother and selling him into slavery in a metaphorical death, throwing him into a pit, which in the Psalms, pit is a, is a metaphor for death. God will use that not just to make Joseph a better person through suffering, but he will actually use that to redeem the entire family and to save them from death and from famine and death. In other words, their killing of Joseph will save them. As we read on in the story, God will use their violent rejection of Joseph to save them through Joseph. We'll see this in the weeks to come. And isn't this what God has done for us? See, that's the amazing thing. Your sin, my sin, Your anger, your bitterness, your rage, your envy, your greed, your selfishness, your repeatedly choosing your own way over God's. God is so strong, so powerful, and so loving that even a lifetime of that, he will draw it into himself on the cross. And he will use that in some crazy cosmic judo move to redeem you, to save you. This is what God has done for us. And Jesus, I mean, you're supposed to see this here. Look at, for, for example, look at verse 23. They stripped him of his robe. Did that happen to Jesus? They stripped him of his robe. But you know what else? This word strip in Hebrew, this part of the Bible was originally written in Hebrew. A technical translation of the word is flay. It's the word used in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 6. He shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. It's the word used in the sacrificial law that that the priests are supposed to skin the animal before they offer it. They flayed him. Look at Joseph and see Jesus stripped of his robe and flayed with the whip as the soldiers brutally Destroy him. Look at the brothers and see ourselves. Look what it says in verse 23. They stripped him, then took him, then cast him into a pit, and then sat down to eat. You know, every time I read this, it reminds me of that scene at the, in the return of the king when Denethor feasts as Pippin sings as he sent his son to his death. Do you know that scene? Have you seen it? It's haunting, right? Pippin, this angelic voice. Denethor eating in this kind of grotesque way. That's what the brothers are doing. As their brother, we learn in chapter 42, it tells us that he was screaming and begging them for mercy. And they're eating. And we must come to see in that violent betrayal our own sins. We must come to recognize that our own sins are that bad. Our own selfishness 
is that bad. Our own lust and greed and anger and self-oriented lifestyles, our own, every refusal we have of Jesus, every time we rise up and say, will you be king over me? Every time we resent his claim on our lives and resist it, we are Denethor, feasting over the death of our Redeemer. And it should break us. It should shatter us. We should read this and we should say, it's me. This is how I treat God sometimes. This is what I've done to God. And, but we should remember the whole context. Even knowing this, Jesus came looking for us. Even knowing that when he found us, we would, we would resist him. That we would re- resent him. But even that resistance and resentment, he drew into himself, he absorbed it into himself to save you and to save me. He takes our rejection, our sin, our anger, all of it, and he absorbs it into his body on the cross. What wondrous love is this? I hope that we love Jesus so much more. I hope that we look at him and look at the brothers and see ourselves and look at Joseph and see a shadowy outline of the Lord who came and offered himself to us. And in a few minutes, we're going to come to the table. And as we're taking our offering, we're going to bring our bread and our wine and our money. And we're going to sing, I surrender all. And isn't that the right thing to say in response? And so when we get to that moment in a minute, Let's all of us, myself included, every single one of us, let's hold on and hold before the Lord those places in our life that we are not surrendering. And let's be amazed that he will take them and absorb them into himself and forgive us and redeem us and save us. I hope that you will do that. Let's pray.